Mana 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 this is social discasting welcome to social discasting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest is a comedian a television writer an author and a shirt entrepreneur who's written for rick and morty my little pony and don't trust the bee in apartment 23 amongst others he's a burgeoning tiktoker and a slightly above average dancer please welcome dave horwitz welcome Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for taking elements of my own bio and uh, using them for me. (laughs) It's uh, great to not have to say those things myself, but they sound (laughs) great coming out of someone else's mouth. Yeah, I just it's that fun thing of like, hey, let me just summarize this person as some form of introduction to anybody who might not know them. So yeah, it doesn't feel like a fair thing, but I'm like, well, I gotta gotta do something, right? Yeah, I guess as the... uh, Deeply unfair question, but a starting point nonetheless. How are you? How am I? Um, I think that question is getting a little bit easier to answer. I think you, you, you maybe you caught me on a good day, but I um, I I think I'm doing well. I feel generally good. I got a decent amount of sleep. I um, I <laughs> ate breakfast. I walked my dog. I mean, it's it's funny. I think all of the things that count towards doing okay or, or managing or, or getting a little bit like the goalposts are getting moved a little bit further away now because we're possibly coming out of, you know, the worst time. So, you know, it was a hard year and then it was a hard three months after the year. And now I think things are getting better. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. I've, I was able to go home and see, uh, see my family for the first time in a year and a half. And that was kind of nice and affirming and, uh, and relaxing. So, I long answer all of that short answer pretty good (laughs) well a a couple things on that one I was just thinking when you were talking about that too that in a weird way it's kind of nice that it feels like you can give a dismissive answer again to some degree over how are you it's almost like it's not a loaded question at least not as much as it has been in the last you know 14 months or whatever it is Oh, yeah, you can say not bad and actually mean it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like You don't have to think about it too much, which goes both ways, I guess. It could be in the most positive way. You could really think about it or the negative way, but it's kind of like, yeah, I'm fine. Sure, good. Yeah, or like, eh, not bad, and then you don't have to delve into <laughs> it that much because you know that that person's probably not doing terrible. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's been a year of, of you know, intense Zooms where you just go like, oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I don't know. I don't feel... And then it's 40 minutes unpacking why. I mean, that's kind of why I stopped doing my own podcast, because it was sort of a, um, I guess I would say pithy kind of lightweight exploration on food and relationships. And then like almost about a year ago, it turned into conversations about social justice and, uh, you know, discussions about racism. And, you know, it just it gets well. I, my dog is, has chosen this moment to play with the heaviest uh, toy I have for her, which weighs probably <laughs> close to a pound. And Perfect. her favorite her favorite game is to just get on my bed, chew it, drop it off my bed, pick it up again, and repeat. But <laughs> and she, it's almost like she knew I was trying to be profound in this moment. She didn't want me to be uh, too up my own ass. But um, you said social justice. She was like, "Oh, that gives me an idea." Yeah, I know what I'll do. I'll throw the blue. <laughs> I'll throw the blue ring that's supposed to taste like chicken off the bed. Uh, <laughs> But but yeah, I, I was just I felt just done. I, I done, I've done so much talking and unpacking and Zoom therapy and discussions with people. And it just it's all felt, uh, you know, I know some people who are against all odds thriving in this time and making things and selling things. And Lord knows, you know, my heart goes out to them and I, I'm I'm proud of them and happy for them. But I just uh it's just been a real slog. It's just such a weird. I'm I'm I live in a pretty well sized apartment, and I have a big room, and I have my own bathroom, and I have my own entrance to the to the place in my room, uh, like you know, leading outside. And I I still feel incredibly cooped up. And now that people are going out again, there's sort of this. You know, I went to an outdoor bar patio place with a friend a week ago, and could not believe how many people seem to be absolutely thriving i was looking you know close to boiled shit and (laughs) all the people around me were i was like what is this east hollywood bullshit have all these people been inside doing crunches and like ironing their new clothes i'm wearing 
you know, an H&M button down from like seven years ago and ripped uh, cut off shorts. And, uh, you know, my hair's a mess and I'm going, wow, everyone got hotter and they sound like they've all launched into new projects. And I'm like, maybe they're all just full of shit. But all I know is, you know, my my reintegration process is a little bit uh, a little bit stickier, a little bit slower, but that's OK. <laughs> yeah, I wish that there was like a return to social life probationary period of a month or two where it's like we can all look like shit as we get back into some form of. Oh, yeah, this is what it was like before all this, because, you know, I think about that, too, about how, like, to go all this time in your life with this relative social life and you go out and you do all these things, how that can almost seemingly be undone in such a short amount of time. Oh, absolutely. Which is wild. Yeah, Yeah, I was I was, you know, I was working out regularly, which I started doing to, like, fix my uh, some back problems I was having. But then I kind of got into it and then the pandemic started and my. Thank God, you know, a doctor was like, you could either have invasive back surgery or you could start doing Pilates. And I was like, I'll take the the cheaper, <laughs> the cheaper, less painful one. And uh, so I started working out and then pandemic hit. And my teacher was like, I'm still I'm offering classes over Twitch. And I said, great, I'll do that. And I did that for like two months and kept to it and was just like looking and feeling great. And then I just decided, no, I don't want this. I will not be doing this. And I just totally stopped. <laughs> I feel, yeah, during all this, too, that I went through so many different, unsurprisingly, but so many different, like, ebbs and flows of, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this conservatively, I'm going to eat well, and then for just as long after that, that time period, I would just eat, like, absolute shit, you know, like, Mm -hmm. going through these different forms of trying to be motivated, but then also waves of comforting myself, maybe even, like, too much to try to cope with it all, that it was all, it's... You know, just even on a basic social level, to lack that is not how humans function. And so it was very, so difficult to try to navigate that road. And also, like, think about bullshit that I've been avoiding for so long. That was oh, really, yeah. so difficult. Well, it's, I mean, I think that this, if this has taught me anything, it's just that life is long. And so I, I, you can think about, oh, this was a year where I, you know, binge ate for a week and then ate clean for two weeks and worked out for a month and then sat on my couch for six weeks. But just time is time stretched out and became infinite. But then we're going to, you know, you're, you'll have dozens and dozens of years after this that have nothing to do with the thing you just lived through. And so for me, I'm, you know, the thing that I, I think maybe the only thing that I will probably be, uh, will hopefully be taking with me is that I almost, I, I mean, I, I cut, I guess I would just have to say I cut in cr- way, way back. I can't say I stopped, but I, I almost stopped uh, drinking. I think since uh, New Year's Eve, I've had probably four or five drinks total. And that was, you know, a personal choice. I was leaning on it really heavily. It was sort of, you know, self-medication in the form of, oh, I'm going to just whatever. I'll I'll. I've never, my body's never really processed alcohol that well. And the older I get, the worse it gets. So I would start and just go, just keep beer on hand at any point and then had a white claw phase and then had a bourbon phase and then had a vodka phase. And not, you know, I think the, when, when white claw came around, I was like, here we go. Like, it's clear. It's uh, low alcohol relatively. Like I'm gonna, this is how I will stave off the hangovers. And my body was like, absolutely not, sir. No, thank you. That's not going <laughs> to, we will not be enjoying this or letting this into our body. So uh, I just decided this doesn't feel like it's serving me anymore. And, you know, there's been a few times, uh, not proud moments, but times of extreme stress or uh, being feeling overwhelmed where I'll just uh, have whatever's on hand. You know, uh, it was the other week I got like a distressing phone call and chased it with a, uh, a hard kombucha that my girlfriend left in my house where it's not even good. She was like, I don't like this and I'm just going to leave it in your fridge. And I was like, okay, well I won't drink it either. And then some shit went down and I was like, here I go. And I'm like, Oh, she was right. This is terrible. But I drank the whole thing. And then afterwards I felt bad. So I think, you know, it's just gonna, hopefully I'll be able to do that less and less until it's just not a part of my life anymore. Yeah. It's, it's tough too, especially when it's so again, for better or worse, so readily available. It's such an, it's always an option. Like, regardless, even, like, in a puritanical place like Arkansas, where I am, it's still, it's always available outside of a Sunday. Like, always. Oh, do they not, is it a, is it a dry county that you're in? Oh, no, dry county means they don't sell it at all, but they, but they don't sell it on Sunday, is that right? Yeah, it, they don't sell it on Sundays in the state of Arkansas, period. 
But, like, there are dry counties, too. Like, funnily enough, like Conway, Arkansas, which has, is, like, called, like, the city of universities, self-described. Oh, they have, like, three Because they have, like, three or four there. But it's a dry county. Uh, well, <laughs> legally, it's a dry county. But the way that they get around that, too, is by different places, like restaurants and stuff, having this fake but real membership status. So then you can get alcohol there <laughs> if you, like... And they do a thing where, like, you pay $10 for a membership, but then they give you, like, a $10 coupon. So you're just, like, just signing up for a newsletter, basically. But, you know, I used, like, to, to speak to what you were saying, I used alcohol big time to self-medicate, to not think about certain things and not deal with them, and that shit just adds up. And so I haven't had anything to drink, alcohol-wise, obviously, since January 2020. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. You you white-knuckled this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wow, you did this whole thing sober. That is extremely impressive. It's, I mean, there are so many other ways to self-destruct, too, unfortunately. So I would just, like, eat like shit or do something or not work out when I know I need to, and then you just don't. All these different things. So, I mean, honestly, yeah, that's why, like, this having this podcast and, like, having some kind of, like, relative structure has been huge for me. Another, granted, it's a form of distraction, but more, in theory, healthy to be able to talk about stuff, talk to people, and that's been really great. But, honestly, like, thank God that switch flipped to where I was like, no, not drinking, because otherwise... I don't know where I would be. It'd be very, very difficult. And I don't blame anybody for going that route, honestly, because it's just, it's all so fucking much. It really is. And and I, yeah, I think a lot of people went one of two ways. I mean, I don't know a lot of people that just were like, oh, I'll have, you know, a couple of drinks a week in this time. I think it was either like, I'm not doing anything or I'm doing everything. Yeah. And, and I don't think either one is necessarily even wrong. I don't judge. I'm, I truly, I can't, I can't judge. Like I, I, and I guess the only people I judge are the people who, uh, you know, absolutely are living their perfect uh, best life in this time. And 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 I guess I guess it's the people who say like, you know, I kind of haven't like, you know, I freelance, I work from home anyway, so I kind of feel like nothing really changed for me. And I'm like, you fucking asshole! God damn it! <laughs> How? 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 Please. <laughs> More than anything, like I don't blame anybody for for these different coping mechanisms i do not blame them at all but to your point like anybody who was like yeah i'm fine it's great yeah fine you know it's almost that's worse than good or bad is like fine as if they're completely undisturbed by everything happening that i'm more suspect of than anything and i just don't know what to do with that information yeah 100 percent. i it's just the fact that this happens like I w- I just had so many moments this year where I even if something was going ha- even if a normal thing was happening even if I was talking to a friend on the phone or taking a walk I, I guess it would be taking a walk in the time before everyone had to wear masks outside but you know I just had so many moments where I was like oh this kind of feels nice it's a nice day out and then I just checked myself and thought wow this is actually happening right now this is yeah this is everybody's inside and people are washing their canned goods in the sink because they think that COVID can live on their cans. Yeah, I remember getting around when they announced that stuff and getting a package and then you're just like putting on gloves to get whatever dumb shit I ordered to then do that and then you sterilize and I, you know, we were very serious about that just because like I just didn't know and now it seems ridiculous or quaint even but at the time it was like no, this, this shit could be on packages. It could be in water or on glass and it's just like what what do you do (laughs) i just don't want to get covid or give it to anyone else yeah that was my rule of thumb i mean people who were just like i'm not wearing a fucking mask i'm not doing this i'm not doing that i'm like okay i mean i that's fine it just means you're less either you're less terrified than me or you're more terrified than me in a way either way like do whatever you got to do to not feel terrible like i don't know i feel like People comforted some people comforted themselves by, you know, wearing gloves to the grocery store, which I did for months in hindsight, which is crazy. Yeah. And uh, some people did it by believing conspiracy theories, which I think is a little bit weirder than wearing gloves. <laughs> I feel like that this last like again, like twelve to fourteen months has been just thirty five million different forms of like empathy tests. And if you come out of it without showing any of it, it's just like I don't know what the fuck to tell you. There's a void in there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many awful things that have happened, a pandemic being the most outwardly awful and long standing, but so many different terrible things 
And so many people have shown their asses in a multitude of ways. Mm-hmm. If you don't come out of this figuring something out or taking a look in the mirror, it's just something without trying to be like this uh, oppressive dickhead who's just judgmental about everything, then I just, I got nothing. I don't know. Yeah, I, well, you know, there was, what's a good example? I, I have, I have a, a friend who has a dog that's almost the same age as my dog. So when when we were starting to socialize them, I'd bring uh, her over there and we would hang out outdoors, you know, distanced on their outdoor. They have a little outdoor patio area that leads out to a communal patio area with the, the you know, with the three other, you know, units that are in her kind of courtyard thing. And I, we were hanging out one day and this was peak. This was like November, October ish when it was when la was just surging soap you know just you know hot icus were completely at capacity like the and, apex of yeah. the of either yeah, right there yep her roommate who may be a nice guy i don't know who is of course a dj uh walked <laughs> over to the not that high fence and was talking to us and we were sitting a couple feet away but he didn't have a mask on and was leaning over the fence and takes his phone out and starts talking about this great, exciting vacation he's stoked to take. He's uh, His friends in him rented this Mexican villa, and he is pulling up these really impressive, cool-looking pictures on his phone and holding them out for us to see. And, you know, I don't get very close. My friend maybe stands up a little bit, and I'm thinking, this guy's going on vacation now to Mexico. Yeah. He's getting on a plane now. He's one of these people who's like, oh, airfare is really cheap right now. Yeah, no shit, dude. So he, you know, he leaves, he walks away. I'm like, Jesus, that was weird. And she's like, yeah, he's a nice guy. I don't know. About, I don't know, three, four weeks later, I am talking to my friend again, who I probably don't think I've seen since that day. And I say, how's your friend? And like, how's your neighbor? And she said, uh, well, we just got an email from him yesterday. He has COVID. Of (laughs) Of Of course. Of course. How else could that story end? But it's like, yeah, he was. Just sending a note that he's, you know, not coming out of his place that much. He's getting his groceries delivered. He just wants everybody to know. And I'm like, of course you fucking got COVID, you moron. Like, the, the people who were like, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm taking advantage, man. We can go on vacation. That's rad. I'm like, you are crazy. Like, this is such a weird response. It's like, this is how I process my trauma is I will not process it whatsoever. Or I'll figure out what's in it for me. Oh, I can get a great deal on doing this. I've heard of people doing that, too. And this is like the most sociopathic seeming thing, or one of them, is that they're like, this city in Europe or something was bombed, and then they travel there immediately because it's like, they think, well, it's cheaper than ever to fly there, and this is the safest the city's ever going to be. Yeah. And just the idea that people process something through that prism is wild to me. It really is. And well, you know, I mean, and I could be giving these people too much credit where I'm thinking, well, you know, they're they're burying their this traumatic time and it'll hit them later and then they'll need therapy some of them won't some of them are just <laughs> no. a lot of them are too young like I, I you know i saw i'm seeing a lot of like peak pandemic i saw a lot of tiktok kids throwing mansion parties and i just don't think they're you know i was like a teenager when 9 11 happened so I, I not that they're obviously they're not the same thing but like i watched that happen on a tiny tv and it was tragic and awful but i you know i think i was removed enough from global and international politics like i was you know it was awful and terrible but i think because it didn't it didn't directly affect me i wasn't in new york i didn't have family that was there and and i think it's the same with these kids like if if one of their parents was gravely ill if like a tiktok millionaire's dad was dying from covid maybe he would have stayed home from that mansion party but i think they all were like whatever dude we're young we're healthy we're not really watching the news we're kind of like ingesting it in one ear and like farting out most of it and the stuff we retain is like i guess we gotta wear masks but whatever fuck that bro it's gonna gonna live forever i yeah dude i just got my teeth whitened i'm not wearing a mask fuck that (laughs) well i we're the same age so i was yeah i was 18 when 9 11 happened and i just remember being woken up because it was a tuesday and i was a freshman in college oh yeah same exactly yeah and so i was woken up at like I think it was like 7:50 after the first one hit, and then the second in between, obviously didn't know at the time that and I was just woken up being told like a plane just hit, crashed into World Trade Center. I was like, what is going on? And very bleary eyed, I got up and I watched, and then I saw it happen live. Granted, this is a obviously it's you get the entire situation happened so quickly relative to COVID happening over the months and months and months and still happening, 
But the chief concern near the end of the day was you should go get gas because they trade gas and gas might be hard to get. And so I was waiting in line for like an hour to get gas that day. Like oh that's how God. far it went for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, it's, you know, yeah, as much as I can hate on these, uh, on these, you know, swoopy haired teenage millionaires, I'm like, well, I, stuff just doesn't affect you that much when you're young. You're what you're, you're worried about. Like, am I going to go to college? Am I going to have a girlfriend? Am I going to, what am I going to do this weekend? And the people who aren't, I mean, you know, I see someone like Greta Thunberg and I'm like, man, you are more thoughtful than I am now. And you're <laughs> 15. Good for you. God bless you. But I'm not going to pretend like, you know, I just, it's like, there's the new, there's so much bad news and so much of it. Uh, I think it's, it's just a lot to ingest now. And I think now that we have access to everything, it, I mean, it was different, you know, when we were 18, there was high speed internet, but there wasn't, you know, the internet just wasn't as sophisticated. There wasn't Twitter. There wasn't Facebook. There wasn't Instagram. There wasn't it TikTok. It was dramatically different. Yeah. But right. at the same time, it's like you could still read the news. And that is not what I was doing with my free time. I was, you know, I was downloading. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that at, by that point, Family Guy had been canceled and not brought back. And I was downloading, you know, the first couple seasons onto my computer at college so I could watch it. <laughs> and people were like, dude, he's got the Family Guy episodes. And like, they're not even out yet. They they canceled it. And I'm like explaining to people like, yeah, Fox canceled it. And then they put their, I think they're going to have this other show on. And it's, you know, and little did I know it would be on for 25 more years and I would never watch <laughs> it again. But it's like, um, I don't know. I mean, God, we're off on a, we're off on a, a wild tangent here, but basically this is a long way to answer your question of how am I doing? The answer is I'm doing well and terrible and I'm thinking about everything and nothing. And I think that's how a lot of people are doing. I think um, to steal a title from a Nora Ephron film, it's complicated. It's com. Oh wait, I think that's uh. Could that is be- that Nora? Shit. I think that's I Nancy get- Myers. God, I always get those two romantic comedy auteurs. I always conflate those two. Nancy, the, the rule of thumb is uh, Nora Ephron. Well, I don't know how. Well, how can I say this without whatever? I, I would say Nora Ephron is is the more uh, Jewish, and Nancy Myers is the more waspy. So Nora Ephron is Harry when Harry met Sally. And Nancy Myers is the one who always has uh, stark, beautiful white kitchens in hers. That's right. Because, like, yeah, I think, what was it? It was, it's complicated. No, it mm-hmm. was the one with Diane Keaton where the entire subplot was about her building her kitchen. I think I that's it's complicated. I think that's Meryl <laughs> Streep's kitchen. But then there's <laughs> Diane Keaton's and something's got to give. It's, I mean, it's very funny because people are, you know, people are like, there's a lot of rallying around Nancy Myers that she's an auteur, but it's like, I don't know. She she makes her films aren't bad, but it's like I think it's complicated. Let me let me see how. Let me. See I'm looking this. that up. It's complicated. My memory is that it's complicated is over two hours long. Is it? Yeah, it's exactly two hours long, which is so long for a movie that's not really about much. It's so long, and it's funny seeing this photo now too because I completely forgot that Alec Baldwin was in it. I just read today that Alec Baldwin apparently requested. Or said something to the effect to like the producers of The Sopranos before that show was off the air, saying, "Hey, I want to be the one that kills Tony Soprano." <laughs> what? That's what he said to them. Wait, hold on a second. I want to see this. Alec. Yeah, and somebody apparently like quipped, "Oh, we'll add you to the list of Irish actors that want to be on the show." Alec Baldwin talks Sopranos dream role that got away from him. That is such yeah. a funny way to to word the fact that he just called the producers and was like, I want to be on the Sopranos. Of course you do. Everyone did. Yeah. But that, but he probably did it in such a way of like, uh, I want to be on this and I'm going to say it in a way of like, I know you're going to have me on this. Cause he's yeah, that is, a, a that is one man. entitled man. God, I can't stand him. But now that we're talking about movies, I did watch a movie last night, as you're well aware. I, yeah, I, I, I had to stop myself from, from commenting or from messaging you, <laughs> but you know, if uh, the listeners might know, we don't, we don't uh, know each other. You reached out to me. And yeah. so uh, I fo- or at the, at the time, I guess you, we've been following each other for a couple of months, it seems. And you reached out to me recently. And last night you posted uh, the poster to my favorite childhood movie, the poster of which I have hanging up in my room. Oh, really? Yeah, it's right. I'm looking at it right now. It's a huge, uh, like lobby poster from 1977. The mouse and his child. The mouse and his child. I you, I have to know. Did you have you heard about that movie anywhere else except for some place that I might have talked about it? No, I saw it in your review on Letterbox, and that's where I got it. 
And I also wanted to watch it because A, I was like, what is this movie? But B, in your review, you specifically say like, you can't find it anywhere, but you also need to talk to somebody about it. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I, I've got to watch this. Did you find it on YouTube? Yeah, that was the only place I could find it, just like you in your review. And I watched it. And when I was watching it, first of all, I thought it was both, I think, beautiful and fascinating and like deeply haunting. Yeah, it's really, it's really haunting. It's really like fascinating and kind of fucked up. And But I was when I was watching it, I was just thinking, man, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have watched this movie as a kid. Oh, it, it yeah. It, it would have really left an indelible mark on me. Really messed me up. And it's like, there's, there's uh, the part of it. So, gosh, I wonder if this will make any sense to anybody who's, I, it, actually, no, because it, it literally, it does not exist in any other form. There's. You can, I think you can buy a VHS for like $150 on eBay. Who even has a VCR anymore? Yeah. But it's on – there's like two pretty decent rips of it on YouTube. This is a movie that I – you know, long story long, my aunt dated a, a one, one of several guys in, in the 80s and 90s that she like was with for a couple years that we met once or twice, my brother and I. But he – this particular guy get, gifted us like five or six VHS tapes with – like six or seven movies illegally dubbed onto each of them. So it was like a bunch of kids' movies. And it was a lot of like The Rescuers, An American Tale, uh, Fievel Goes West, you know, uh, maybe some live action stuff. Oliver but, and uh, Company? You said all, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Oliver yeah. and Company. But this was one of them. And this is like a Canadian movie that's co produced by Sanrio, like the company that makes Kuropi and I believe Hello Kitty, if I'm remembering. Amazing. And. It's the it's an adaptation of like an a Canadian kids novel by this guy Russell Hoban. Uh RIP. Wait, is that his name? Oh my god, did I get it wrong? Holy shit. I don't want to do I don't want to do a disservice to this insane movie, but it's it's the story of a uh, wind-up mouse and his son who are joined at the hands and they live in a toy store. And one day they fall into a trash can. It's like the scariest, saddest version of Toy Story. Like people talk about it how really is. People yeah. talk about how dark that part in Toy Story three is, where they almost go in the incinerator. It's like that scene does not hold the candle to anything that's in this movie. Like, it is not like e- any yeah. any portion of this movie is far more disturbing than anything in, <laughs> in any Pixar movie. Period. But certainly Toy Story. Yeah, I mean the thing is though, like it's not all doom and gloom and creepy it's just presented in such a way and like the voice acting is you know cloris leachman who just passed away but like the legendary comedian sally kellerman who was on mash peter ustinov who's like a legendary actor there's a lot of great in it too he's so good he is really good but there's the kid voice and the dad voice i think are like i think the weakest parts and i i uh, you know i've my, my girlfriend knows how much i love it and there was i tried to show her like the the craziest part of it which is like I'll talk about it in a second, but the craziest part of it is the what is just what I showed her like out of context, and she was like, "I can't take the 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 voices because it's this very they're very flat. It's the it's the dad goes, son, we have to go on our way now. We're on a mission to go. We have to find our way home." And the little kid's like, "Papa, I'm scared." <laughs> it's such a weird, like. I if it did if the, if it wasn't for YouTube I would not be able to prove that this movie existed but there's actually a ton of weird shit for it on eBay you can buy lobby posters you can buy like still images of some of the cast in the recording booth it's I, I've yet to, to like buy all of them but I I do have the poster and I framed it just because it's this weird artifact from my childhood but it's even it's older than I am so like it came out six or seven years before I was born and. I don't know. It's it's like a weird existential. It's like an existential nightmare, but it's not entirely kid unfriendly. But it's I mean, it's weaseled my way into my brain forever. Like I'm I am writing a I'm currently writing a script that is like a cartoon mouse show, but it's it's for adults. So it's like (laughs) this clearly got into my brain and didn't leave. (laughs) Well, you also had like it truly was you discovered this movie. It was on a tape with a bunch of other movies and. In general, though, even if you like know a little bit about it, like I did, and then you watch it, it's still like, what the fuck is this? Even without, you know, with the anticipation factor. And to your point, though, like it's not all doom and gloom by any stretch, but the animation style has a dreariness about it that kind of just hangs over the proceedings to some degree. And also, like a certain percentage of it, it takes place 
in a dump or them running for their lives in a snowy forest. There's just so much <laughs> going on. Yeah, and esca- escaping from a frozen lake that they almost yes. die in. That that is my that's my favorite. That's the scene that I think about the most. I I wish I could give a timestamp for your viewers because because uh you know you can just easily type it into YouTube. But the the part so it's basically the it's these two mice and they're on a journey to they're they're wind up mice and it's an existential journey because they're on a journey to become self winding, which means they don't need someone else to wind them to to move. Which is so it's so much deeper than like anything you would see that's that's from a kids movie. And yeah. I just am looking at my own review and I forgot that. Like, I'm comparing the darkness to people going like, oh, Toy Story 3 made me cry. It's so dark they almost died. But Toy Story 4, I forgot because, I mean, it's I liked that movie, but I've definitely forgot about it by now. It literally, the middle of Toy Story 4 is a, like, escape from a evil, freaky toy store. And that's kind of, like, what happens in this movie, but stretched out over 90 minutes and with some creepy songs in the middle and you know they yeah they almost die and like a frog magician hiding in a in like a glove has to help them escape it's (laughs) it's really fucking weird even this sentence from the wikipedia page once transported to the dump they become enslaved by manny the rat who runs a casino and uses broken wind-up toys as his slave labor force oh yeah yeah there's (laughs) that sequence has (laughs) That sequence I always remember as being like more fun than it is, and every time I re I rewatch it, I'm like, oh, this rat's a fucking pervert. He's hanging <laughs> yes. out. He's hanging out in the dump. He's like got this broken popcorn machine that he's like feeding all his stupid like lackeys with. And I believe there's a scene where he takes a rotten apple core and sticks it on a pair of doll legs. Is that something that happens? Like there's, I believe so. Yes. Like he makes like a lady out of an apple, like a shrunken apple. And, and a pair of doll legs. And that is, I mean, none of it is something that a kid should see. It's really, 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 really fucked up. It really is. And when I was watching it, too, that I was thinking, I, again, like I said before, I was thinking, well, man, what kind of effect would this have on me if I'd watched it when I was a kid? And then I was realizing some of the movies that I saw when I was a kid that came out that basically are surrogates for that type of movie. You know, when I was six, I saw... All Dogs Go to Heaven, which came out mm-hmm. when I was six. When I was five, I saw in the theater the movie The Bear, which the opening yeah. scene of which that movie genuinely fucked with me, like big time, because the opening scene is a rock slide that crushes the head of the mama bear, and this is again live action, real and bears. Then, yes, and then the rest of the movie is the bear running for its life for like ninety minutes or whatever, and that really messed with me as a kid, like big time. I really want to know. I, I was thinking about the bear the other day because it feels like lost to time and that I don't think it's streaming anywhere and I don't know really anyone who, else who's seen it. I don't know, think I've ever had an adult conversation with someone about the bear besides this one right now. But it was it's, there's no humans in it, right? It's just a little baby yeah. bear running for its life and I don't understand how they made it. It's not a, it's not a nature movie. It's it's like a narrative movie with no dialogue that starts it's a, a it's live a French bear. It's a movie, by the way. It's a French movie. Of course. It's a live act. And I think they have, I'm looking at it now, they have like a little, they have a handful of people in it. And by the way, it's streaming on HBO Max. Holy so shit, it is? Yeah, apparently. Oh my God, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to have to watch it too now. Oh, Checky Cario's in it. He's a real French actor. Holy shit. He's wow. great too. This movie made $30 million in the US <laughs> and Canada. And it says $120 million worldwide. I guess this was a hit. And very well reviewed, apparently. I remember liking it, but but th- that that is more like I guess visceral and scary. Return to Oz was a big one that fucked a lot of kids up. Did you ever see that? Yes, I did. My main takeaway because I rewatched it like you know like two three years ago because some parts of it are just like when you're remembering it. I'm like, was this a fever dream I had, or did this stuff actually happen? But my main reminder was of it. What I thought about was, oh, it'd be really cool if there was a tree that just had like sandwiches in it. <laughs> that'd be really nice i'd like that i mean that's a nice that's a nicer takeaway than i had when i tried to rewatch it i i tapped out pretty quick because i got to the scene where i'm, I'm looking up what they're called they're the things that they they have wheels for hands god nightmare shit that what are they called the wheelie the wheelies i, I what oh the wheelers the wheelers okay that sh- i mean and then the one from my childhood that I really couldn't handle at all, even when I was a kid, was the Dark Crystal. And I I feel... 
It's like, terrifying. I feel like I'm missing out on something because I know that it's like amazing and ingenious and cool. And Netflix announced that they were making like a new a new series adaptation of, you know, a new a new uh, Muppet Studios version of The Dark Crystal as a TV show. And I thought, you know what? I'm an adult now. I'm in my 30s. I should be able to watch this and appreciate it for like the artistry and the beauty and the puppetry. And I watched the trailer and I was like, absolutely not. Nope. No, no, no. Absolutely not. No, thank you. And I didn't watch it. It's drudging up way too much stuff for me. Yeah. I can't do it. I remember watching that too. Yeah. I watched it way too young. And I just remember it just being terrifying, like utterly terrifying to me. Yeah. And, you know, we mentioned why well, I mentioned before Oliver and Company. That's one of my earliest film memories, actually, because I saw it in the theater when I was five. And I remember genuinely coming out of it thinking, oh, that's the greatest movie ever made. Like, <laughs> oh, th- th- oh, this is the best thing that I'll ever see. Like, I was just so into that movie. I loved every second of it. I think I liked it too, and I and when when Disney Plus happened uh, or when it when it debuted, I realized that through my, I think my family's cable provider, we all got a free year of it, and so I went and started going like, oh, I'm gonna revisit these things, and so I watched The Black Cauldron, and I'm like, this is scary and boring, <laughs> uh, and then I watched Oliver and Company, and I was like, this is not great. I've not seen it since, and I'm. Yeah, I'm curious to rewatch it, but I'm also like, let me just keep that memory like stamped in time. I don't need to revisit this. I think so. I think that's probably wise. And I, yeah, it's it's been a weird, I mean, it's funny. I think I've been through a real, you know, home entertainment journey through quarantine where I spent a giant portion of it watching just tons of movies, just tons of, me too, tons of 70s movies. I'm working on, I'm trying to, I mean, it's proving to be harder than than anticipated but i'm trying to write a detective story and so i watched basically every 70s detective movie i could find like anything i could get my hands my hands on i was delighted to find out like oh every kind of scruffy weird leading man in the 70s got to play a detective from elliot gould to gene hackman to richard dreyfus to robert mitchum i mean everybody everybody had a crack at it so i watched you know a couple dozen of those i watched some like 70s Walter Matthau comedies and was like wow he he really was popping in the 70s like I yeah it was just a weird I just stuff was coming out that people were loving in the pandemic series and movies and I was like no nah, I'm I'm good with like this old uh boomer shit and then <laughs> I kind of came to I feel like I came to the logical end where I was watching like every Elliot Gould movie and I watched everything he did in the 70s and it gets really rough at the end of the 70s and then I watched an 80s canon film he did that was just unwatchable and he doesn't even look like he's trying in it and i was like all right maybe i'll start uh looking at tiktoks and youtube and stuff and then i started doing that and i was like wow i this is not what i had anticipated for myself in this time i did not think i would come out of the other side of the pandemic being like yeah i'm on i make tiktoks now i do have a question about tiktok after this but i'm doing and This pretty much unofficially for me started this 70s journey that you went down or going down, I guess, still to some degree. But I did that in January because I just started watching Elliot Gould movies. (laughs) I was like, oh, I just want to let me just watch a bunch of Elliot Gould movies, which then led me to watching George Siegel movies, which then. Yes. And then I watched a bunch of it's like you just watch movies and then you look at your like metrics on Letterboxd. And I was like. Oh, well, I've watched five movies with this person. Let me just watch more of this person's movies. So it's very self-perpetuating. So I've watched this year 70s movies. I've gotten so into watching them that I've watched apparently 65 movies from the 70s. Oh my god, you beat me and I've been doing so I'm I'm doing I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm doing 70 from the 70s and I started it like I think it's September of last year and I've just been like working so slow. I think I'm on like 61 or 62. And you've already got me beat, and you started in January. That's wild. Yeah, it it speaks more to a problem that I probably need to fix on my <laughs> end than anything. But I've been watching it, like, hardcore, and I've started reading again because I just had no attention span at all during all this. But I read The Big Goodbye, all about the making of Chinatown. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, really interesting read. I burned through that. It's a pretty quick read. And then I ended up watching Chinatown and then The Two Jakes. And now I'm reading The uh, Devil's Candy about the making of Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, cool. It's a great book. It's fascinating. Because, you know, the I don't know if you know about the book, but the author, she contacted De Palma just being like, hey, could, 
can I like follow you during this journey of making this movie? And he was like, yeah, sure. And so she has everything from what happened leading up to it all the way through the movie. And it's fascinating to, to read it. And, you know, the movie's a huge disaster, but I've been watching, so lately, yeah, I've been watching a lot of De Palma stuff, and that's been great. And I'm, um, I was never, like, against him or anything, but I love how operatic and over-the-top and opulent his stuff is. And I can see that, I can see that being, like, not, a lot of people hating that, but for me, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Well, he's like, he's like, uh you know he's he's known as like the perverted uh hitchcock like he's yeah. just he's like oh i want to make a hitchcock movie but like with lurid shots of like women in 80s lingerie dancing around for like an hour yeah have you seen body double yes uh so that one i think was one of the first ones i saw of his and i fucking loved it i mean it's it's kind of schlocky but it's kind of amazing and the house that it's shot in that unbelievable weird kind of floating house is called the chemosphere and that's a, a real house and it's one of my basically i'm obsessed with two houses the house from body double which is called the chemosphere here in, here in la and the apartment that elliot gould's philip marlowe lives in in the long goodbye which is insane because it just went up on the market it's completely dilapidated falling apart and if you look on the listing kurt cobain and courtney love lived there in the 90s Holy shit. Yeah, so there's like Kurt and Courtney forever, something spray painted on the wall, and people like are going like someone in, I follow on Instagram that follows me, like a like a friend, is a huge Nirvana fan and went and got a tour of the place for no reason that had anything to do with Robert Altman's <laughs> The Long Goodbye, which is one of my favorite movies ever. And it's like, wow, a whole other group of people is obsessed with this cool, weird, like elevated like elevator it's like a treehouse apartment or something it's weird it's yeah it's a weird it's the weird treehouse with like a, a kind of a, a a weird conjoining courtyard thing and it's you know marlo mumbling to himself while like the naked hippie yoga girls are across the hall being like mr marlo can you get us some brownie mix and he's like yeah whatever girl's fine <laughs> but it's so insane to be like oh yeah the, there's you know a million people who are obsessed with that place for a completely different reason and it's, but that reason is also, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 years old too. It's not like a contemporary thing. It's like a lot of, I was born in the wrong era. People being like, if only I could have lived in 1991 in LA. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that uh, the long goodbye, I just love, um, it's a lot of Elliot Gould just like grumbling yep. and kind of like the words almost escaping from his mouth more than he's actually saying them, it feels like. And it's perfect. It's great. And only... I feel like only he could really play that role because he's so naturally charismatic. It's such a role that's like playing in opposition of that. And he's- Oh, yeah. He's just shrugging his way through the whole movie. He's <laughs> like, people are actively trying to kill him. And he's like, hey, whatever, man. It's all good. <laughs> uh, wait, so what George Siegel movies did you watch? I watched. Let me bring that up, actually. Well, first of all, let's get the shocking one out of the room, uh, out of the way. Bloom and Love I watched. Yikes. And boy, was I really into that movie until, until, I, the, yeah. until I was so deeply on a cellular level opposed to that movie. And now I say that, by the way, and I, a couple of days ago, I, I watched for the first time An Unmarried Woman. Yeah, from Mazursky, which is like unfucking believable. Yeah, man, that's one. That might be the best thing I watched in quarantine. I think I watched it three times in the last year. It is. If I could, I mean, you know, I don't know if there's like a, a tie it up in a bow kind of point to uh, to the show or the end of the show or whatever. I don't know where we are in time, but if I could tell the listeners anything, because I know I, I know we waxed poetic about a disturbing movie from my childhood for twenty minutes, but yeah, I would say. Listeners, you can skip the mouse and his child. It's very important to me, but for really like reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of the movie. I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's really interesting, but it's like burned into my brain, and it's not because it's an essential viewing. Uh, it's an essential text in 2021. An unmarried woman is absolutely one of the most unbelievable underseen films. Maybe I think of all time. I can't. It's incredible. I cannot believe how good it was. I can't believe how good Jill Clayburgh is in it, who's like, I don't know, the thinking man's Diane Keaton. Is that unfair? Honestly, I think she is uh, more genuinely endearing than Diane Keaton. I feel like that as Diane Keaton continues to do the same thing she always did, that it feels more forced now. That makes me wonder whether it was ever real to begin with. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Jill Clayburgh 
I just I've I watched uh, a handful of her seventies movies. She has a I don't know what I don't know. I mean, she she passed away. Her last role was she played uh, Kristen Wiig's mom in Bridesmaids, and then she I think died shortly after that. But she had a pretty decent run in the seventies. I think she got an Oscar. She was Oscar nominated for an Unmarried Woman and lost to Jane Fonda. But you know, it's this insanely nuanced, specific portrait of a of a woman you know recently divorced and starting her life over and it's written and directed by a man and i was so my mind unbelievable could not i I mean i keep saying unbelievable but it's just i i'm i'm at a loss for anything more eloquent it's just such a perfect film and you know she's beautiful in it she she obviously yeah she looks fantastic but she gives a great performance the whole supporting cast is amazing. The characters you're supposed to dislike, you do, but then they're also great. Alan Bates is great, too. Alan is Bates is amazing. Smaller role, but great. But I searched high and low for, you know, because Mazursky has a bunch of interviews that are available online, and he also has an autobiography. And I found this kind of old interview where it's hits Mazursky and Jill Clayburgh, and the interviewer's like, how did you write this, you know, as a man? And, you know, he's talking about I think he's talking about like, oh, his wife was ta- telling me a, him, him a story about a friend of hers. And he just kind of extrapolated past like he just kind of went from there and kind of thought about a story about a woman. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. It's like feels like a magic trick. And then I looked online and saw that he had an autobiography that came out like 20 years ago and I bought it. And this is the most upsetting thing that I've and whatever. I'm not a huge reader, but I devoured this book because I just loved him. Yeah. So I like I just I'd watched so many of his movies, like all of his 70s movies and some of his 80s movies. And he was, you know, he he was hit or miss. But I read this book and there is a chapter on literally every single one of his movies except an unmarried woman. And I do not understand why <laughs> it is by and like he made Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. That was his first movie. And it was yeah. great. Uh, and there's a long chapter about that, maybe because it was his first movie. I could not tell you why he doesn't talk about it in the book, maybe just because it was like. He knew it was his crowning achievement, and he feel like maybe he felt like it overshadowed all of his other work. But you know, that's what I want to know about, though. That's the one I know. Well, he also made Harry and Tonto, which is really good, and it gave Art Carney uh, an Oscar. And he Art Carney beat who did Art Carney beat for that? He beat Al Pacino and I think Jack Nicholson and one other unbelievable actor out for this Oscar as like an elderly man on a road trip with his cat. And it's a great movie, but it's like, how the fuck did he do that? But he doesn't even write about that that much. And I like, I got to the end of the book, and I, I with twenty pages left, I was like, you're kidding me. He's not, is he really not gonna? He's really not gonna talk about Jill Clay? What the fuck? Like, and I realized, oh, I'm the only person having this struggle right now. I'm the only person in the world who's reading Paul Mazursky's like 1999 autobiography, going, he's not talking about Jill Clayburgh. I feel like I aged four decades in this pandemic. It's unbelievable. I don't know how it happened. When I was watching An Unmarried Woman, that's what I was what I was marveling at was genuinely like I was thinking, going through all these different thought processes of how did the guy who did Bloom and Love make this movie? Sure. Both in general, but also like being so empathetic and smart towards women. Like how did how did that happen? And then I thought, did he like talk to a bunch of like how did this come about? I think it was that he talked to a bunch of his wife's friends or his wife was tell- like I think his wife has this, had a similar circle of friends as the representation of the circle of friends in this movie is like that those kind of ambling rambling scenes where it's you know jill clayberg and like her four four or five uh crew her four or five women deep crew of uh you know like like manhattan ladies just kind of lounging around looking at magazines and talking to their her daughter like i think that that was kind of true to his life but he made you know his second movie is called alex in wonderland and it's about a director it's donald sutherland basically playing paul mazursky Although Paul Mazursky gives himself a giant role in it. <laughs> of course he does. The middle of the movie is like a 20-minute scene with him and with, with Donald Sutherland and Paul Mazursky. I'm like, yeah, of course. But um <laughs> but it's a long it's like a long movie that's like Fellini's eight and a half about a director who doesn't know what to do for his second feature. So he was always kind of pulling from his real life. It's kind of tedious. It's not bad. But yeah, I've never for for the listeners, we can just I guess we can just spoil it because I, I don't think anybody's gonna be rushed going like no I don't spoil this movie from 1972 or whatever. But Bloom it's and been Love on a list for 50 years. Bloom and Love plays <laughs> Bloom and Love stars a, a bearded George Siegel as like a shitbag dude who cheats on his wife with I believe his secretary or yeah. like someone he works with. His wife like walks in on him. They get divorced 
it's kind of a nice, like, I would say I loved the first two thirds of the movie. It's like really cool. It's really fun. The music's great. It's about this guy who romanticizes Italy. So a lot of it takes place in Italy. That's also based on a true story. Like it's really interesting. Mazursky like befriended uh, Federico Fellini and they would like hang out in, in Venice all the time. So he fell in love with, with Italy and, um, he befriends his wife's new boyfriend, played by Chris Christopherson, who's so good at it and so cool. Yeah. And then, I tell me if I'm recounting this wrong. There's no really other way for me to describe this. He, the star of the movie, the titular character, forces himself on his wife, on his ex-wife, like yeah. literally has forcible sex with her that she sounds like she doesn't want to have, and then she gets pregnant. And keeps the baby and it like saves their relationship, right? Yes. No, all of that is fair to the point of it might be understating some of these things. And it ends in a romantic reveal in Italy and she's pregnant. I do not understand. There's no part of me that understands what that means, like why that happened. And you better believe there's not a chapter in the book about that. (laughs) Of course. He's not. Of course. Because I'm sure to him it wasn't even that weird. And I'm like, why? Why? But that's like honestly, that's that's the messiness, and like maybe maybe we can zoom out for a second because yeah. I've been so um just so enamored. Like I'm just looking at this list of these '70s movies I've seen, and some of them are just like so messy and so kind of uneven. But there's so many like so much merit to them. I watched Paul Schrader's Blue Collar with uh, um, Yafet Kodo and Harvey Keitel, and it's like super working class guys like like exposing you know union corruption at their uh, auto plant. Just a perfect movie uh, in its kind of idiosyncrasies, but also its its music. The music's by Ry Cooter. It's just a gritty, hard, difficult movie that really just works when it works. Uh, Charlie Varick. Have you seen Charlie, Charlie Varick with Walter Matthau? It's on my list. That one I'm going to probably watch soon. How is that? Because I watched part of, I think it was The Laughing Policeman. Oh, yeah. I couldn't get through that one. I hated it. I hated it. <laughs> Yeah, Walter so Matthau had such a fun run in the 70s where they're like, yeah, he's a tough guy and he also like uh women love him. And it's so the two the two like women love him movies that are amazing by Walter Matthau in the 70s from in my opinion are Charlie Varick, which works. It's just like it's a it's a heist movie. It's a what are we going to do with the money movie? It fucking rules. And then starting over which oh no not starting over sorry uh house calls it's glenda jackson and walter matthau walter matthau plays a doctor i mean it is so well directed and so funny and the chemistry between what glenda jackson and walter matthau is amazing like it's just a really well written well acted movie but the wildest thing is that walter matthau is playing essentially like a george clooney character he's playing like (laughs) he's playing a recently widowed 50 something doctor and women are throwing themselves at him like he's a doctor with a good job and they all love him and he's so charming and so like part much of the movie is these women being like oh doctor like just trying to ask him out and you know no offense to walter matthau but the dude looks like he's droopy dog like it's just such a weird it's you would you would never see that now like that character would only be played by like chris pratt or something <laughs> that's a lot to process i gotta watch that it's funny glenda jackson was in a touch of class with george siegel with which george I siegel yeah oh god it's so funny that you're watching all the it's you're, yeah. you're like three months behind like me i totally <laughs> lost my mind doing this i enjoyed that movie but i was also shocked it's funny that when you watch some of these movies and then you go back and look at like the imdb page and you see like three Oscar wins or something. And I'm like, how in the fuck did that happen? That I'm some of them. I'm, I just never, nothing about them gave me the inkling that they would have had this prestige element to them. Well, time, it was, things were so different. It's like, yeah. and I, you know, whatever, obviously, you know, you spend your life pining for an era that you, you didn't grow up in because that's, you know, like Gen Z is obsessed with 1992 right now because, you know, their their uncle gave them a pavement record or something, and which is insane because their uncle is probably like eight years older than me. And I just can't I can't process any of this. But like when I watch 70s movies, I, you know, I live in L.A. I'm in the industry. I'm obviously I'm not in the film industry. I'm in the TV industry, but I'm adjacent to it. And so it's like, you know, my friend worked with a guy who wrote Stuber. And, you know, I I yeah. kind of know uh, Kumail and I, you know, people who like. I know the guy who wrote uh, Brigsby Bear with uh, Kyle Mooney, and that guy is also the guy who wrote Tom and Jerry. Like, yeah. it's and he's a great guy, but it's like 
I don't think he was extremely passionate about Tom and Jerry. I hope I'm not telling tales out of school about about him. Hi, Kevin. If you're listening, he's not. But he's he's. It's like people just you follow trends in the industry. Studios follow trends, and now the studio system is dissolving and being gobbled up by conglomerates like Amazon and and Viacom and AT and T. And it's 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 kind of nasty to me because the era where you could just make, I mean. It's not that I – it's like Paul – who's like the closest thing to Walter Matthau? I don't know. Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti is not opening giant movies where he has like – he's a romantic lead or he's like a bank robber. Like Charlie Varick <laughs> is Walter Matthau as a fucking badass wearing a suit, hiding out with a bag full of money, like nailing babes. <laughs> it's un- – it literally is – it would be like if Philip Seymour Hoffman was alive and he was basically like starring in a Tarantino movie. That's which funny. Is, yeah. Oh no! I was just say that that like the big goodbye does contextualize that a little bit about how the seventies came to be and this consolidation and you know like uh, the Paramount versus whatever decision that provided you know that protected them from vertical integration and gave control like it, it does give that a little bit of because I'm I'm that's what I'm fascinated by now about like um how did this happen exactly yeah how did this incredible decade of film how did that come about and I don't know if maybe it's just my other reading or what but some people have said that basically like yeah it was a good run in the 70s and then Jaws came out and killed everything yeah that's every everything I hear like from from like the birth of the modern blockbuster was it was Jaws and after Jaws it was like that's all we want and I think that's an oversimplification, but it's also, you know, you see a ton of sequels in the 80s. I mean, all that stuff is kind of well-documented, well-tread territory, but I just – and then what everyone says now is like, that stuff exists. It's just on TV now. And I'm like, is it? I feel like you're getting 15 Star Wars shows and, you know, shows yeah. on Hulu about comedians and adaptations of movies that turn into, you know, four seasons of a show called Fargo that, like, isn't even really anything like the movie Fargo. But I will say, you know, we we can we can close out of the seventies. Yeah. But I just I'm looking at my list. I have to point viewers to if you want to be really frustrated and confused, there is a movie that I have to recommend just for its sheer weirdness, and it is called Stay Hungry from 1976. And I will read you the synopsis. It stars Jeff Bridges and Sally Field, and a young, young, young Arnold Schwarzenegger. But it also has Robert England, a.k.a. Uh, Freddy Krueger. It has Ed Begley Jr., has Scatman Crothers. This is one of the weirdest movies I have ever seen. And the synopsis does not do it justice, just how weird it is. Here we go. A dishonest businessman asks Rich Layabout Craig Blake to help him buy a gym, which will be demolished for a development project in Alabama. But after spending time with weightlifter Joe Santo, and, who is uh, uh, Schwarzenegger, and gym worker Mary Tate Farnsworth, Sally Fields, Craig wants out of the deal. The property negotiations turn ugly, causing a brawl at the gym and a spectacle at a big bodybuilding meet as Craig learns that it's not easy to turn your back on fair-weather friends. <laughs> and this is directed by Bob Rafelson, who did uh, Five Easy Pieces, the Monkees movie, Head, that Jack Nicholson co-wrote. Uh, and he did, else? yeah, King of Marvin Gardens, which I, I watched. Oh, yeah, King of Marvin Gardens. This is one of absolutely the weirdest movies I have ever seen. It... Like that set, that paragraph like makes it sound like there's a narrative thread. It's literally like Jeff Bridges is like a rich boy whose like investor friend or or cousin or something is like, hey, buy this gym and then we'll tear it down and put up like a a, a block of hotels or whatever. And uh, then the rest of it is just him getting distracted by like gym culture. So he's hanging out <laughs> at a gym. The manager of the gym is like this weird guy who wears a toupee who ends up like trying to force himself on Sally Field so he fights him and the uh, Jeff Bridges fights him and the guy's throwing weights at him like oh he also does like what looks like poppers or smelling salts throughout the movie it is it culminates in like I have to watch this it culminates in these guys having like, a fight in the middle of a parade it it is like i mean the part of my review was just like it's really played out when people talk about oh this person was probably on like oh oh i'm sure everyone was on cocaine it was it was everyone was on coke a hundred million percent but yeah that's i just feel like that was 76 jaws was like what the next year 77 70 or jaws was 75 but this feels like the last kind of like okay things are things are getting a little out of hand here <laughs> maybe some limitations are good yeah you know, maybe some considerations other than fuck it we'll just try this it can be valid and i think to your point about jaws like 
you know, Jaws is just like the the face of what everything became to some degree. But I think, if anything, it introduced studios to what was financially possible that they just didn't realize could be a thing. And then they chase that almost a dragon, but chase that shark forever now. And it's wild when you look at even just the Wikipedia page of like the top 10 box office movies from each film in the 70s. And you see like Jaws, 100, whatever, 200, 300 million. And then how the year before that, like the biggest movie was like made like $70 million. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and it's like, it, it's, it's, you know, Jaws is, well, here's where I show my ass. I have not seen Jaws, but uh, <laughs> I, but that's, I mean, it's like, I'm working my way through the 70s, but I'm not doing like, you know, I've only seen The Godfather. I haven't seen the second one. Like, I, <laughs> I keep getting distracted by going like Jeff Bridges and Arnold Schwarzenegger made a movie like 45 years ago. What the fuck? And the fact that I have this time and it, and it is fascinating. Like I feel, I think the weird movies of the seventies and eighties are a lot more interesting than the weird movies of the two thousands and the 2010s, maybe just cause I'm alive for them and I can see like where the trends are coming and why they're happening. So maybe it's just like less fun or less like fascinating to me. Like, you know, I, if, I understand why Paul Thomas Anderson made Inherent Vice or, or you know, whatever, because he was a big Thomas Pynchon fan and what, and also that movie gets better over time. But, you know, it's far less weird than a movie where it's like Jeff Bridges decides to hang out in a bodybuilding gym for for an hour and a half of a movie that's two hours long. Yeah, I think there's a dramatic difference between like genuinely confoundingly weird and weird relative to movies being so much safer and having two billion other considerations other than like is the movie going to be good yeah i mean i i think i hope if the viewers take any or listeners take away anything from this it's that there was a lot of more profound strangeness in movies 50 years ago and you would be hard pressed not to find something you liked i mean it's funny i i don't i don't know uh i wouldn't assume if you were uh, jewish or not but i've been i was watching a lot of these movies because i i'm fascinated with the 70s for every reason, but I'm also just, you know, slack-jawed watching going, wow, George Siegel, Elliot Gould, James Kahn, like, they just, Richard Dreyfus, they just let these, like, wild, unruly, sideburned Jewish men be in, like, 11 movies that they were the star of in one decade, and you kind of don't really, you know, it's like, you gotta look like a Chris now. There definitely is a type, it's almost like, uh, whatever the movie is, you better be jacked for it. Seems yep. to be you better the get general, you like, yeah, you better be huge. Why? Because everybody else is. Then just don't make everybody be jacked. Well, but everybody's jacked, so we're going to be jacked. <laughs> yeah. Which is <laughs> like, again, I mean, more power to anybody. Do whatever you want. But yeah, what the definition in keeping with that of jacked in the 70s versus now is dramatically different. Oh, yeah. Guys it's who ate steak wild. for breakfast with a glass of milk and like had <laughs> yes. uh, 20,000 cigarettes in a day and, you know, maybe like lifted a paint can were considered huge. Like even the people that were jacked, like you're like Charles Bronson, but he was deceptively so. Oh yeah, there's a movie, there's a seventies movie, uh, where he plays a bare knuckle boxer and he's not very big in that at all. Oh, that movie's great too. I really enjoyed that movie. And I watched the other day Mr. Majestic, which is the most the word melons has ever been said in a movie. <laughs> it is said hundreds of times probably. Wait. What is that one? I, I, I've seen a couple of Charles Bronson's and some of them just kind of uh, bleed together for me. Mr. Majestic. And he is a melon farmer. In it. <laughs> and he says melons so many times. Wait, why is he? What is, what is the premise of the movie? The premise of the movie is like he is an unassumingly dangerous man who hires workers to work his melon farm. And some guys try to intervene in that process by hiring their own people for him and trying to force that on him. And then he goes to jail for being violent towards them. And then he pisses off a hitman who was in jail with him. And then the rest of the movie is that guy trying to kill him. Oh, my God. And at one point, uh, spoiler, they fuck with his melons. And that's when things <laughs> get real. It's amazing. It's it's a fascinating movie. Okay, and there's I'm some gonna really watch good moments. it. I just looked it up. The one I saw, I think, was right before this. Was the mechanic that they remade with Jason Statham? That's the Charles Bronson movie I saw. And I want to watch that too because I know on um, the great podcast Action Boys they just covered that yesterday. It just came out. Oh, did they? Did they cover the original or the the, the original? Yeah. 
Oh, cool. It just came out yesterday. It's great. And they cover Mr. Majestic on there. That's also part of what was guiding me to some of my, my watches or rewatches too. But um, yeah, we need to wrap it up because we went way over. Oh, and shit. I, that's not a complaint. This was a damn delight. Thank you for doing this. I, <laughs> I could do this so much longer. I, I well, th- this is truly the first time somebody has uh, ha- somebody's viewing habits have aligned almost per- exactly with my own. So I think that's <laughs> why we went over. Yeah, no, it was inevitable, frankly. But no, this is great. What all, if anything, do you want to point people toward before we wrap it up? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of current. I guess I'm currently losing my mind on TikTok. You can follow me on Twitter <laughs> if you want. Uh, you know, I I make. Uh, I haven't updated in a while, but I make uh, fake T-shirt designs and I sell some of them at uh, Dope Shirts for Sale, the number four. That's on Instagram. I'm just Dave Horwitz on uh, Instagram and on Twitter. It's Dave Horwitz with an underscore between them. On TikTok, I am incredibly normal guy (laughs) and I don't know what I'm doing on there. And it's potentially having an early midlife crisis. But if that's what I'm doing, it's kind of fun. So check me out. Well, it's a lot cheaper than buying a sports car or something. So that's good. Absolutely. You know, it's free. It you just cost your time at that point. Uh-huh. But yeah, dude, thank you again. This was so fun. Thanks for having me, man. And listeners, uh, 1970 to 1979. It's, it's, it's got a lot for you. God, it has everything. It really it does. does. And watch those. Take care. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Wear a mask, I think, but maybe not. But definitely get vaccinated. And <laughs> bye. Bye.